Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini, I'm a PhD student in Computational Biology at EPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a Biotech Futurist. The Biotech Futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech, but I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Today I am delighted to host Professor Elisabetta Palagi from the University of Pisa to explore a topic that deviates a bit from what we've been discussing at the Biotech Futurist so far, namely play and social play in animals. To start scratching the surface of animal consciousness or maybe go a little bit beyond that surface. Professor Palagi has been a leader in primatology for over 30 years and among several successes she was recently awarded the Animal Behavior Society Fellowship Award for her outstanding research. Professor Palagi, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I have so many questions to ask you that it's even hard to decide where to start. Could you please introduce to us your background, passions as a scientist and as a person and broadly your research? Okay, thank you uh, for inviting me to the to this podcast. It is a very good uh, occasion to me to talk about play behavior in animals. Um, I am a biologist. I got a master degree in biology and a PhD in evolutionary biology. And uh, my first interest uh, was uh, in primates, in non-human primates. Um, and especially in, on social behavior in a human primates. Later, uh, along the year, I expanded my interest also to other taxa, mammal taxa, uh, in particular to social carnivores, in order to understand if um, it could be possible um, to analyze some behavioral traits in order to understand if uh, some traits shared by the different taxa uh, where um, homologies or analogies and if and whether the environment uh, um, created the condition for a shared behavioral traits to occur. So, um, my, one of my favorite topics actually is play play in all its forms, starting from play with the mother and later with peers and, uh, and later um, on adults. Uh, play behavior is, um, is a very important activity uh, for juveniles, especially to, um, to cope with uh, unexpected situations, to learn to cope with unexpected situations and to build uh, those scaffold, those social scaffold that will be extremely important to them when they will have to face um, important challenging as adults. So this is my the main interest in studying social behavior in different animal uh, species. That's cool and indeed uh... I think you have so much to tell us today about it. I'd like to start from how do you and other etologists and primatologists study and quantify play and the benefits of play you were just referring to? Okay, uh, defining play is one of the most important and challenge things to do. Uh, it is mandatory to reach a very good definition that is shared among scholars uh, because uh, without a very a shared and common definition, it is extremely difficult to operatively def 
get data on, on this complex behavior. So uh, a behavior to be defined as play must be uh, um, extremely um, variable. Uh, it, normally it peaks during the juvenile period and then uh, tend to decrease during the adult phase. It is uh, extremely unpredictable. It is a behavior that borrows particular pattern from uh, the so-called serious behaviors that can be defined as uh, reproductive behavior or uh, um, all those all foraging behavior, for example. And uh, this is uh, um, this is extremely um, uh, important because uh, in some cases uh, the fact that play behavior and other behavior can share common pattern and behavioral action makes very, very difficult play to be defined. So, uh, but we have some hints that help us to define play. For example, some playful signals emitted by animals, but also by humans, uh, such as the open mouth display and laughter for humans and smile and so on. That's cool. So, can you give us an example of uh, some quantitative data that you collect, uh, you in your daily work, ha or have been collected in the past? So, wh what kind of uh, measures do you do on animals? Uh, do you count specific behaviors happening uh, in a sort of amount of time? Or what kind of other data do etologists and primatologists working on play typically collect? Okay, one of the first things that we need to, to record is the frequency of play, which is normally normalized on the amount of time each individual is visible to the observer. Uh, so the hourly frequency, um, it is a very good measure and good uh, information in order to understand the motivation uh, an animal has to play. Uh, then, after uh, quantifying uh, play, the amount of play, uh, we normally divided, mm, while doing this um, uh, quantification, normally we keep uh, the different kind of play uh, separate from each other. For example, we can quantify uh, solitary play, which is a completely different thing uh, things from social play. Solitary play can be uh, subdivided in uh, other uh, type of activity, such as object manipulation, for example, so object play, or locomotor rotational play, such as uh, um, acrobatic patterns or high jumping patterns that animals perform when they are, when they are alone. On the other side, we have social play. And social play can be occur with or without an object, for example, and uh, can engage, for example, can recruit a particular uh, patterns that are very close and similar to the real fight. So for this reason, we talk about play fighting. And play fighting is extremely important for animals for refining motor skills, for development, uh, social abilities, and also to, um, it is a very good tool to make a self-assessment. So a sort of comparison of my ability and the ability of the playmate in order to understand uh, which kind of uh, um, performances we are able to, to carry on. Um, Another important measure uh, when, when we work on play fighting is the, mm, the so-called play asymmetry index, uh, which is derived from uh, a very simple calculation in which we can take into account the amount of offensive pattern and defensive pattern uh, are made by each playmate. So the difference in the amount of offensive and defensive pattern give us uh, an idea and, and uh, a sort of index um, of whom 
uh, of the playmate is a little bit advantage during the play fighting session. This is a very important index, uh, and the index is uh, tend to be very close to zero. When when we have an index very close to zero, it means that the playful session is extremely balanced between the two players. And normally we score values very close to zero when we uh, are uh, watching play between infants, for example. But when we move to juvenility, it starts uh, it starts to become more uh, unbalanced in favor of one or two. For example, uh, we have we are recently analyzing data on horses, and we realize that there is a difference in the balance of the playful session between those foals that are that have higher or low ranking mothers. So it seems that the rank of the mothers can affect the playful modality of the foals. Wow, that's unexpected. Yes, yes, um, but it is probably uh, due to the fact that the, the foals can um, can take within the group, the, uh, the hierarchical rank uh, of the mother. They are generally, um, the, the, the foals uh, with high-ranking mother are generally more central in the group compared to the other one. Yeah, I was thinking, is this something cross-specifically true or something demonstrated for only one or a few species? Uh, it is very difficult. Um, because it depends if you have data, for example, on the mother without the without the baby. Mm, yeah. Because, for example, these data were collected uh, when the, the female were pregnant, well, before the birth of the foal. But it seems that it is there is a strict, a strict, very strict linkage between the rank of the mother and the playful modality of the foal. That's cool, and all these, I guess, are observatory studies directly in the field, so they are pretty hard to do, I suppose. Yes, yes. It, it, it is generally, uh, working on plays is extremely time-consuming and energy-consuming, and we need a lot of patience uh, waiting for play to occur, because in some cases, play is not so common, is not so frequent. So we need to collect a lot of hours of, of observation in order to have enough data to analyze. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you also use cameras and put cameras in strategic places or do you typically observe yourselves? No, no, we use cameras. Normally, more than one camera. So yeah. It depends on the on the numerosity of the groups, of course, on the environment we need and the surface and areas we need to cover. Uh, in some cases, we also use camera traps. It depends on mm -hmm. where we are. Um, in other cases, we have uh, uh, operators uh, directly uh, getting videos and uh, uh, recording audios. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's fun, but also frustrating sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like the life of a scientist in general, I suppose. And yeah. um, you are saying something very interesting, and I'd like to link to that. Namely, that is um, that young animals tend to play more than adult animals, right? So uh, I think this is like a, a frequent question that happens to, to be asked, but at the same time, a question that really uh, almost never has a very satisfying answer. So could you clarify why this happens for us, please? Okay, there are several reasons. Um, there may be several reasons. Oh, for example, uh, when you are juvenile, uh, or infants, better, even better, uh, you don't need to forage by uh, your home, but the mother uh, help you. Uh, the mother helps you to um, to collect food and give food for and search for food for you. So uh, babies and infants ha simply have a lot of time to dedicate to normal, serious activities. I remember that time. Yes, me too. And um, another reason is that uh, during the juvenile phase, infant and juvenile phase, you have uh, the largest amount of synaptogenesis process 
So your brain is extremely, extremely active in forming new synapses. And that's why probably there is a strong correlation between this period um, uh, in which your brain is particularly active and play behavior. Because when you play, you receive a lot of stimulation, not only from the environment, so, but also from other members of the group. So all this kind of stimulation helps and trigger the synaptogenesis processes. Um, and that's why, for example, we um, a lot of activities uh, helping uh, um, elder people uh, trying to get advantage from social activities. And that's why most of the uh, supporting um, activity to, to help uh, elder people is, are based on play behavior. Cool, yeah. Different kind of play behavior, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, by playing, it seems that also uh, you can recover also from, uh, exam for example, from brain impairments mm. or damages. That's great. I mean, it seems like learning how play works in childhood can really teach us something about how to do the most of adulthood. And as a fun thing, I may say that uh, being playful in the lab while doing experiments is also supporting the moral at some point, I think. So play is really like a, an activity that can really boost performance and uh, well-being at probably several levels of life. And thank you for explaining to us. I was thinking that um, also you and your colleagues have noticed that play has something very different from most behaviors, right? It is not directly advantageous in an evolutionary sense, like most behaviors are advantageous because they reduce uncertainties, you were saying in some review that I read. So that makes sense. The animal can reach some goal because, you know, that really uh, uh, reduces the number of possibilities to explore in the form of acquiring food, shelter, partner, and these things. But play on the other hand creates uncertainty and why is this the case? Could you explain this concept to us in a deeper way, please? Yes. Okay. Uh, play uh, creates uncertainty and animal while playing create uncertainty uh, because uh, the challenging is to cope with, that, with those uncertainties. Uh, when an animal uh, play, uh, normally uh, he does um, when it is free from stress or it is, um, it is in, in a very relaxed situation. So it can, uh, it can um, create uncertainty condition in order to, um, to test himself or herself and to verify if their own abilities are actually um, good and enough to uh, to solve um, important and um, important problems that will be uh, presented maybe later in the life. So, uh, by creating uncertainty, animals can improve their own abilities, and uh, uh, it is uh, a playground, very safe actually, in which animal can freely test everything he wants. And that's why we, we say that when animal plays, they create uncertainty. In the other, on the other side, uh, when you have a very few time, for example, to um, for reproduction, you, you cannot uh, lose your time, and you need to search uh, very fast um, a play a, a mate. And uh, you need to reduce time and reduce uncertainty about, for example, searching for food, searching for mates, or defense from predators. But during play, you are more free to lose your time and to test yourself in order to get advantages that will be very useful in the future. Yeah, so trying to sum up in very simple terms, I guess you're saying that it's not something uh, human specific, but that's happening more and more in general in animals. That childhood is like a relaxed period where you can 
create uncertainty for yourself to learn to cope with, with this uncertainty. So when you'll be older and you'll have uncertainty, but you won't have the time and bandwidth to cope with this uncertainty, you'll be already good enough because you have developed skills during childhood to cope with this uncertainty, right? Exactly. That's cool. Um, and you have also proposed that play is a joker behavior. I like this definition. So what does this mean? Okay, it is a joker behavior because it can be used, especially by adults, when it is necessary. For example, uh, we found that in prosimians, in a species of prosimian in Madagascar, play is used uh, in Shifaka, which is a very uh, tolerant species, showing dominant, female dominance. Uh, we easily realize that uh, uh, some extra males uh, starting roaming uh, around our males, uh, our groups, and uh, all these males, um, after a very mild aggression with the resident males, started playing with the resident males. After this playful interaction occurred, uh, the aggression incredibly dropped uh, in very, very few days, so the resident males and the outgroup males did fight, um, didn't fight, uh, but they began to play. Uh, after this first session, um, we also noticed that the tolerance of resident males started to increase towards the uh, outgroup males. And all the outgroup males and the resident males reach and obtain a lot of copulation with the females of the group. So it seems that in some cases it can be used as a, an icebreaker mechanism. So uh, we are not familiar to each other, uh, but by playing we can break our mm, distance and we can reach an agreement and then we can uh, tolerate each other more, avoiding aggression. So, um, in this case, uh, it is this is a very uh, simple example of why of what can be uh, the benefits uh, linked to play even in the adult phase. Nice, that's nice. Yeah. So, so what are the main activities of social play? that infant chimpanzees typically engage in, for example, and how do you somehow define uh, the rules of this game? I mean, you as the observer scientist uh, have to understand the rules of their game. How can you be precise? And I mean, you, you observe a lot, I guess, but I'm interested in the specific project, uh, that, uh, the specific process that goes from the project, the idea from the observation to really designing the specific scientific questions and asking them with data. For example, uh, I had a question that came to my mind when I was reading your reviews. Uh, how do primates make the non-serious intentions of the game clear to one another? So trying to sum up what I was saying is, um, how can you as a scientist uh, understand the game, for example, in the case of social play in infant chimpanzees? For example, what are the rules of the game? Uh, how do chimpanzees make clear the intentions of this game? Yeah. Um... Uh, this is an interesting question because uh, there are some elements that are extremely useful to understand that an activity is actually play or not. Not only for the playmate itself, but also for the observers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, uh, if you see that two chimpanzees are play, play fighting together, but you uh, can realize easy that uh, one of them or uh, in turn, uh, can assume some uh, particular self-handicapping position. So they put uh, voluntary in disadvantageous position. This is a very good hint for the other playmate that play fighting session is going well. Uh, another important uh, point is the signal, the facial signal. Facial expression are extremely important during play. So chimpanzees normally perform play faces um, in which the, the mouth is, uh, is extremely relaxed. Very, um, they reach a very open gradient, but relaxed. In the play face, you can see the lower teeth and in the full play face, you can see also the upper teeth. 
times uh, associated to this playful expression, we can find also the acoustic uh, component, uh, which is called laughter, more or less, uh, which is extremely similar to ours. Uh, the laughter of the chimpanzees, um, it is very funny and um, it is uh, something like that. Okay, this is a painting, staccato, okay, uh, that is emitted while the animal uh, assumes this uh, play face configuration. Uh, this is extremely common uh, in infants and juveniles, in some cases also adults. And you can uh, hear and see this particular signal when the intensity of the playful interaction is particularly high. Uh, Tico is one of the behavior that stimulate a lot this kind of social interaction. It seems that after performing this kind of, inter uh, of uh, facial expression and acoustic component, um, the session is better modulated. So these signals help to uh, create a playful mode, a positive playful mode for both players that, that can synchronize better their movement and they perfectly understand that there are no um, harmful action in, uh, in, in, during the interaction. So a bite is not a true bite, uh, pushing is not a true pushing, is jump, a jumping over is not a real jumping over, okay? Because before uh, engaging in very, very offensive action, animals mm, smile or laugh, and this smiling or laugh modulate and inform the others that what is follow is just only play and it is not harmful at all. Yeah, that's great. I was thinking that I'm interested also in the scientific aspect of discovering these behaviors, you know. Let's suppose that you have uh, access to everything that was published in the literature, you know everything, you've observed so many video recordings of some given species of animals, so you basically know everything about them, and you want to formulate some new hypotheses about their behavior. Um, maybe based on your experience or specific examples of your own work, can you tell us how this works in etology. I, I mean, I don't know much about this specific branch of biology, uh, and that's so fascinating because I, I think that hypothesis generation is something that vary, varies a bit from discipline to discipline. So could you give us some example, please? Normally, uh, we need some preliminary observation. Of, of course, you need, we need to know literature uh, very well in order to starting to be aware um, about the knowledge already accumulated in literature, then we normally, we, um, we perform some preliminary observation when possible, because uh, uh, if the, the work includes some field observation, for example, in, um, in Africa for primates, uh, performing preliminary it observation costs a bit. Is, not so, yes, is not so easy. But normally I follow the rule that before going uh, in the field, um, in the wild, uh, I try to accumulate some experience on the same species in captivity. Uh, this approach is extremely helpful because when you arrive in the wild, you already have important info, accumulated important information and it is much more easy to um, uh, to be aware where you want to put your eyes and this is extremely important uh, it improves the quality of research and also it is also helpful in saving a lot of time when you are in the wild uh, the hypotheses normally uh, are formulated as for many, all the other disciplines. So you start with an observation, you start with a question, and then you uh, try to answer such question 
by hypothesizing that something can occur if you are right. So uh, <laughs> the process is the same for the same. The scientific method is uh, perfectly applied also to uh, um, and work works very well for ethological studies. Um, for example, uh, what we try to uh, to explore is is that uh, if facial expression are very very important in the modulation of the playful session, um, we could hypothesize that uh, those sessions punctuated by a lot of facial expression can be also um, can be also more uh, balanced compared to those sessions that are not punctuated by facial expression. And this is a very, uh, it is not easy, of course, to get data, but it is conceptually easy to demonstrate. Of course, you need to spend a lot of time with animals recording a lot of playful session. You need to uh, measure the asymmetry of the session. You need also to measure the play phase performed by each players, and then you need to uh, run some models, some multivariate statistics, in order to understand if your hypothesis is true or is supported. Because I don't like to uh, to talk about, uh, for example, hypothesis confirmed because before confirming an hypothesis, we need a lot, a lot of studies. Science is so about falsification. Yes, I really do prefer, okay, in this case, this hypothesis seems to be supported. Yeah, totally on your page. Thank you for explaining in depth. Um, something that I think we've touched upon, but haven't explored in depth until now, is uh, the role of social play for social competence in adulthood. So basically, lots of species play in childhood to become not only um, competent uh, with regard to uh, unexpected situations uh, and uncertainty that we were discussing before, but also for social competence. Could you give us examples and explain this deeper, please? Yes, for example, it has been demonstrated that those animals play more and having a large social network uh, uh, of playmates uh, as adults tend to uh, have more um, have social network uh, more uh, richer compared to those subjects that during infants were uh, isolated. Okay, so it seems that um, by playing, by socially playing during the immature phase, uh, can be extremely helpful in. Uh, uh, increasing trust in others, for example, and uh, animals seem to be uh, more able to manage social situation. For example, uh, we um, are focusing on the different, on some different species of macaques. The genus Macaca um, is uh, seems to be uh, evolved to help scholars studying play. Uh, although they share the same social structure, the species belonging to the genus Macaca uh, share basically the same social structure, but they are a, a strongly uh, different in the inter-individual uh, relationship. So you can find some macaque species showing um, more tolerant societies, and you can find macaque species showing extremely despotic societies. So, uh, if you look at the play behavior in infants between different species, one belonging to the very tolerant ones and the other one very despotic, you can find, for example, that the baby has a very, uh, in despotic species, the babies uh, do not have large network. So, and uh, on the other side, uh, in tolerant species, uh, the baby are allowed to play not only with the other babies, but also with the adults, also unrelated adults of the group, because mothers living in a very tolerant societies are much more permissive with the babies. So while growing up, the babies 
become more competent and are able to enrich their social network and to manage much more, um, uh, many more uh, relationships with a large number of individuals. So, um, it seems that mother permissiveness, which is necessarily linked to the level of tolerance of a given species, makes the difference in forming social network of the babies that then later in the future reflect the social network as adults. That's super interesting. Thank you. Uh, I think it's time to jump to the other big topic of today's conversation, that is facial mimicry and the level of facial expressions in play. So I know that you are deeply interested and expert about the role of facial expressions and rapid facial mimicry in play and in sex. I'd be happy if you could introduce us to the topic. So play faces, honesty in play faces, tolerance, congruent responses, and all the definitions that I've learned from your reviews. Yes. Um, okay. Um... Play faces are uh, one of the most important tools we have to understand others. Um, in some cases, you can learn uh, on, on one of your friends more by looking his or her face more than listening what he or she are saying, is saying. And the same for animals. So if I start laughing, because I am extremely enjoying the moment, you start laughing too. And in most cases, you start laughing without knowing the reason, but just only because you resonate on my face. This facial mimicry, which is, a mod, which is also called a motor resonance phenomenon, is completely automatic. So it is extremely rapid, and uh, in most cases, it is unconscious. So it cannot control the fact that you smile when I smile. Because you smile, you start smiling simply because you are stimulated by mine. This is facial, this facial mimicry uh, seems to be a vehicle, a very good vehicle, in order the two, uh, the, the two interacting subjects can share the same emotion. So if you start laughing and I start laughing, uh, by mimicking your face, I can reproduce in myself the same positive mood you are uh, experiencing. Um, that's for why this phenomenon, the mimicry phenomena, are considered um, some, ba some basic building block of empathy because um, it is highly probable that if we share the same emotion, we, this, with the, if we share the same facial expression, probably we can share also the same emotion. And sharing emotion with others, uh, the phenomenon is called emotional contagion, is extremely important in order to empathy. Higher form of empathy to a world. Yeah. So, Play is considered one, fertile, one of the most fertile domain to explore this phenomenon, this rest, motor resonance phenomenon. That's super cool. So, what about tolerance? Uh, and I mean, wh what are the consequences of uh, mimicry and facial expressions for tolerance? Yes, um, we saw that the two things are linked, of course it's difficult to say uh, and to detect a specific uh, cause-effect relationship, but what we found is that it is, we have a correlational data. So, for example, we found that tolerance increased the probability of social play, and if you increase the probability of social play, you also increase the probability for sharing positive emotion. So, it's difficult to say um, what, what comes first and what comes later, of course, because it is difficult to establish a cause-effect relationship, but there are indications that tolerant species uh, can um, play for, for sure more than the spotted species, and that 
there is also other characteristics uh, such as grooming distribution if we are talking about primates or affiliative behavior in general that um, are more present in tolerant compared to despotic species. So we really we really think that tolerance and cooperation can help play to evolve, but together with play also all many other positive. Mm -hmm. Thank you for explaining. So keeping our focus on facial expressions and their mimicry, I know that you and your colleagues have demonstrated uh, how sexual facial expressions specifically affect positively sexing bonobos, both uh, female to female and heterosexual sex. So I'm interested in how your research, your day-to-day -day work led to this idea and also the relevance of this idea for the field in general that I don't know much of, but I think that's really, you know, interesting and standing out as a very interesting observation. And also how you collected the data, the methods that you've used. Uh, as before, I'm really interested in the science behind uh, these great results. But also if you could uh, give us some uh, of the corollaries of this observation and what it means for the field of so-called social sexuality. Okay. Um, bonobos are an incredible species to explore um, all the patterns, all the behavioral patterns linked to joy. Because they are extremely joyful. They, uh, they get advantage and from a lot of... Uh, uh, free social interaction. They are extremely playful, also as adults, and they also use social sexual behaviors, not only for reproductive uh, purposes, but especially for um, creating bonding in the, in the group. Uh, specifically, uh, bonobo females are, are extremely smart in that. So, uh, females form alliances and through alliances they are able to dominate over males. Contrary to chimpanzees in which you can find um, male dominance compared to bonobos. Um, the pervasive use of sexual behavior bonobos do um, allows them to create long-term bonding. And that's why you can find uh, sexual behavior, not only uh, between males and females, but also between uh, two females, for example, two males, and um, uh, also infants uh, participate to, to, to such activity. Um, why I work? I start working with bonobos for uh, to study play because I was uh, I was focusing for my PhD uh, for my PhD thesis on play behavior between and the difference between of play behavior between the two pan species, so chimpanzees and bonobos. But it is not possible. Uh, it, it was not possible to uh, to put the eyes also on social sexual behavior, and I easily. Uh, realize that while doing sex, especially females, uh, they look each other in the eyes. That's so interesting. The position is ventral-ventral position. And also heterosexual uh, contact are in most of cases ventral-ventral. So uh, it seems that for animals, uh, looking uh, each other into the eyes is is more important than the content, the sexual content itself. Uh, the, a, a particular facial expression, which is strong, which strongly resembles a smile, was already recorded during um, sexual interaction by Franz Deval and other scholars, and I noticed that uh, during some preliminary observation that when one of the partners starts uh, performing this sexual birthies, uh, the, the, the sexual, the, the mate, the sexual mate, start doing the same. So we focus and we get data and videos of uh, in all occurrences sampling. So every time an, uh, a sexual interaction occurs, 
we have uh, we had our video cameras and we recorded all their sexual interaction. So male, 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 female, female, female. Um, but violence privacy. The sexual interaction were uh, involved just two individual or three or four individual and so on. And uh, we uh, collected data also facial expression. Uh, it is important to say that since this behavior needs to arise spontaneously in animals and you cannot absolutely stimulate them, you need to spend with animals a lot of hours. And you need also to analyze a lot of hours of videos. From those videos, uh, on average, you can extract 20-30% of very, very good data. Because if you want to study facial expression and motor resonance and facial mimicry, you need to see perfectly both faces of the playmate. But in the RN closure, because we did the, 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 this study in captivity, uh, they are free to move. So it is not easy to have at the same time uh, uh, perfect visibility of the, say, of the faces of the two subjects. So we need to discard a lot of sexual interaction. And, but finally, we, after mm, many months of data collection, we were able to, um, to demonstrate that the possibility to see the other face increased the probability uh, to replicate the same facial expression. So we need to create control condition uh, under naturalistic situation. And that's not easy at all. Yeah, that's so insightful. Thank you for sharing. And you've also done an outstanding TEDx talk about Pisa at our TEDx Longano Medici in Pisa. So I'll refer to that if people want to learn more and see, uh, most importantly, these faces uh, that are also um, frequenting your reviews and or your own works. And I think the pictures are really outstanding. So if it's possible, we'll also link them on Instagram of the Biotech Futurist and so on. As a final question, I know we are short of time, I will ask you uh, about the um, meaning of play signals for social context manipulation in an opportunistic fashion, which is another very interesting topic. Yeah. I know we are short of time, but just as an introduction, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, we, are, we are the best to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we, our fake smile are uh, pervasive uh, in our life. We as humans. So, Yes, yes, as humans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fake smiles are extremely useful to manage uh, also embarrassing or difficult social interaction. So when you text a message, for example, and uh, you are uh, saying to your uh, to one of your friends, "Oh, you are stupid." If you if you write, "You are stupid," without putting a smile uh, faces at the end of the sentence. Mm. Your friends uh, cannot be so happy, but if you write you are stupid, but you put uh, an emoticon, an, a smiling emoticon, your friends perfectly understand that you are joking. So, the faces are extremely important. Uh, through the faces you can communicate the truth, or you can also Mm, uh, uh, in some cases, uh, uh, avoid to, to, to tell the truth. And that's why facial expression in our species are so important to manage dialogues, but also social situation. And in many cases, in many cases, non-human primates, but also social carnivores are able to do the same. For example, when two individuals are engaging in play fighting and they are running to an escalation okay so because you they are going to uh, use the rougher and rougher patterns in some cases a play face can uh, can have a retroactive function and de-escalate the arousal of the two playmates in this sense, a play face can modulate social interaction. 
So it is not uh, important and necessarily include uh, a negative uh, uh, sense of our smile because smiling is extremely important to um, explain better the concept between two humans, for example, during the dialogue and to uh, create bonds. So Provine, Robert Provine, who uh, has passed away a few years ago, uh, spent a lot of hours uh, watching students in his university. He works in Princeton University and he perfectly understood that smiling and laughing was extremely important in facilitating dialogue and communication between people. So that's why we can say that a smile can manage the session and also can avoid, uh, in many cases, uh, misunderstanding. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And that reminds me of Behave by Robert Sapolsky, a beautiful book that I'd recommend to everyone, one of my favorites. And also at some point of my favorite movie, Into the Wild, because there are so many conclusions that really, I think, is in line with what you've shown us that uh, studying animals can really teach a lot to us about how humans work and help us formulate hypotheses. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you and your group will achieve in the next few years. So yeah, it's been Just a great to have you. To thank about you so much. The Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at the biotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzerabassin.com. I also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.